Well, this morning, uh, always between the end of the year, Christmas, and then the first of the year, uh, sometimes uh, it feels like uh, an unusual Sunday. What do you do during this time? So what we thought we would do this year is that being so close to Christmas, as we have spent the Advent season thinking about Jesus coming and five uh, candles that we lit and longing to think for him about his arrival, what it would have been to be God's people, as they waited for his first arrival, and now as we God's people wait for his second, it seems um, appropriate maybe uh, now to think what kind of impact should Christmas have on you? And uh, how should it affect us? And how maybe did it affect those who encountered Jesus at his birth? And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, Christmas ought to have a profound impact on us. And so maybe it will move forward as we detox from the food and as we, uh, as we, from maybe the distractions and the tiredness that we have. May we also be mindful that Christ's birth has a profound deep, deep, act, deep impact on his people. And this morning we're going to just look at Joseph. Um, and quite frankly, if you'll see there in verse, um, uh, I believe it's 21, uh, that, um, uh, no, 19, that um, jo- Joseph was actually a pretty good guy. And we're going to look at how he encountered Christ. He, he uh, if you'll notice there in verse 19, he, um, it says, being a just man, some said that those that he was faithful to the law would have been another translation there, and unwilling to put her to shame. So this is a guy who was loyal to God's word and the law. He was submitted to it, was thinking about it when something difficult has happened and has found his wife pregnant and he didn't know how. And yet, at the same time, he, he, was, he, was, uh, he, he didn't just tip his hat to the law, like most people will do today in God's commands, but neither was the immoralist who made him feel guilty. He was thinking about, how shall I relate to Mary and not put her to shame? So he, in a sense, is a guy who has grown up in the tradition, and we just, you remember the last couple of weeks, we've looked at the genealogy of all the knuckleheads in the genealogy prior to that that Joseph is a part of, Abraham, David, and those. But he's a good guy. And, uh, but what's interesting is that, you know what, we don't have a single word spoken by Joseph recorded in the Scriptures. As a matter of fact, this is really the only passage we have. And then when later Jesus goes to the temple, we learn what he and Mary were feeling when they lost Jesus in the crowd, if you'll remember that. So we don't have a lot. But there is, it is very, very clear that encountering being a part of the birth of Jesus Christmas really did affect him. And we can learn that from it this morning. So uh, encountering Christ clearly had an impact on him. We'll look at three things. Here's just a quick outline for us this morning. Uh, with submission, suffering, and service. That's what, that's what encountering Jesus for him was like. And that really is what I hope you'll see. This is what it's like for anyone who encounters Christ, that you're kind of called to this. This is what it's like to encounter him in general. And uh, it is sad that we sing some of these songs only at Christmas. There's great lyrics, right? And angels we've heard on high, why do we relegate them only there? They should be sung year-round in many ways about how we see God and what it's like to encounter him. That we ought to always live like he's arrived and we long for him to arrive again. So with that, we'll look at the submission, like I said, and the suffering and service of Joseph and how he was affected by encountering Christ. Let's pray. Father, would you um, this morning um, help us to see ourselves in Joseph? And I pray for uh, maybe there's those who are truly followers of you, and they need to imitate Joseph's life again and just kind of... Um, think about the way he responded, and there's some areas of their life just in growth that they need to respond to you again in this way. But then there are those who may have never really encountered you for, for who you are fully as the Lord and the Savior. And Father, I pray that the salvation that Joseph's life demonstrates of what it's like to encounter you would also 
come to bear in our lives and what it looks like for people who really do meet you. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. All right, so submission first. As we look at the idea, what is it like to encounter Christ? When you encounter Christ at Christmas, one effect that it has on all believers is this is the idea of submission. Now, I mentioned this last week at the end of the service, but I knew I was going to kind of parlay or segue into this week with that. But if you look at verse 21, you say, where, where do we see submission? Now, the idea of this, this encounter, one, just take notice that, that God is determining all the, all the, uh, the grounds here, right? He, he's coming to Joseph on God's terms, right? It's been 400 years of silence, and he's telling them, you see in verse 1, this is what's going to happen. There will be a son born. This will be his name. You see that. So you see God in his sovereign rule is ruling and in charge of the life. Now, 400 years, we're only a 250-year-old country, and for 400 years, God's people hadn't heard another peep from a prophet or anything from God. That's a long time. We struggle with time, right, and length of time. Joseph, however, was already still faithful to the scriptures and faithful to the law, a just man, thinking about that. But nevertheless, um, God is submitting. So there's an idea of submission, whether Joseph knows it or not, I think he feels it, that God's in control. God is the one dictating what's happening. But then the other place that it's really known is this, is when Jesus, uh, actually, in, um, when God, in um, uh, verse um, 21, when he tells him, you shall bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. When he tells him who will name him, he actually, when God names Jesus, that's an idea of authority. Now, in ancient times, and really in our times, we don't formally think that, but anytime you name something, it, you, you, name it, you name it because you have authority over it. So, right, if you go buy your boat and you own the boat, you'll name the boat whatever you want to name it because you have the authority over it. You rule it, right? Uh, remember in Genesis 2, when Jesus, I mean, when, when Adam was naming the, uh, the animals, and God let him do that. Why? Because man, we are, we are his vice regents of uh, representatives to this earth, and we have the authority over the earth to rule and subdue it. So we would name the animals. That's what God was giving him. We were the image bearers of that. So the idea, so it's the same, is that uh, a father and a mother name their child. Why? Because they have the God-designed authority in the infrastructure of a family that God has created, the institution of the family that he created. And so here, though, notice... That Joseph doesn't get to name his son. God says, I will name him. That's important, right? We mentioned last week, he's the only father whose son was older than him. Eternally older. Was before him. His son will have actually was there, John 1 tells us, and created him. So it's appropriate that God would name Jesus because the authority that he has um, was from the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so therefore... Joseph, even in that language, he would have understood in the ancient times the idea that I'm not naming my son, God, you are, therefore I submit to you. So to encounter Jesus is to first, especially at Christmas, is to submit, is that of submission. When we come to him on his terms, and he is who he says he is, I doubt it. Now let me just say, whenever uh, we encounter God, there is an element here of confrontation. Even the throne room names that Kevin prayed through, there that are from uh, Isaiah 9, that seems like sweet language, but when you read that in the previous verses there, uh, and that Isaiah passage, we're looking, it's actually God's people, the context is a confrontation of God, saying to his people, Isaiah is speaking to those who are stiff-necked and in sin and in darkness, and he says, and out of the darkness a light will come, light confronts the darkness, God's people who are living in darkness, and what is born, a virgin gives birth to a wonderful counselor. So even the throne room's names, as, as comforting as they are, have a confrontational element to it. 
And there was even fear in Joseph, as the passage alludes to here, because he tells him not to fear. There's something going on. There is that. And so it's on God's terms. I'm God. You're not. And, um, but also notice the other half of that, that once we're met with his confrontation and the reality that he's God and we're not, there also is the very next line there, verse 21, which says, for he will save the people from their sins. So that's like the pattern of Isaiah 6, right? Where Isaiah sees God on the throne, holy, 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 and sees in him, his conclusion is, whoa, he's confronted by that. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I'm among a people of unclean lips. But then what happens? A heavenly being comes down to atone for his lips and his sin. So when we are confronted with the reality of who he is, what is right there waiting for God's people? His love and his comfort to rescue us. Now when Joseph, that phrase there, uh, that uh, for he will save the people from their sins, that was a phrase in the Hebrew uh, and in the Greek, but particularly in the Hebrew, that was all throughout the Old Testament. He would have understood that as that this is the God who graciously saves us from our sins and the promise of what he would be. So this submission is a beautiful submission. We're confronted in one sense, and yet we're also, when we see that he's a God who's coming to save, despite who we are, the submission makes sense. It's a beautiful submission. And to encounter Jesus at Christmas, the impact of that is to submit. And you must rightly, rightly see him. So in that sense, Matthew, it tells us a beautiful fullness of God, what it's like to encounter him. He has complete authority over you and I, and he's God and we're not. He's orchestrating all things. And yet he profoundly sees us as individuals and comes to save us from sin. That's what it's like to encounter him. Now, we typically, typically have a God of our own making, right? I mean, that's the world. We want to make God out to be what he is. And he says, no, it's on my terms. I am who I am. And, uh, but oftentimes we do want to cultivate. It's very natural for us to cultivate and create a God of our own making. Now, sometimes we don't do it as blatantly as maybe others do and worship of idols or those are other false gods, but we do it as well. God's people do it. And, we, and, and people who want to have a relationship with God still want to define him on their own terms, right? It's appropriate. Some of us want to define God, not submit to him, but define him as Santa Claus, right? Meaning that you exist in order to give to me. You're a means to an end of the things I want, uh, which was both of the brothers' story and the prodigal son of their dad. They loved their dad only because they didn't love him for who he was. They loved him for what the benefits they could have of their inheritance and being it. So maybe he's a Santa Claus God. That would be a wrong view. That's not a, that's not a view of submission to the beauty of he's a God and I'm not. He gets to decide what I get. And nor is it that of the beauty of who he is and his kindness and love to us. It's a conditional view of my performance. That's an improper view. The Don King view, I used to have this in Bible studies on college campuses years ago. Most of you don't even know who Don King is. Do you remember who he is? He was the guy who had a lot of tall, tall, long hair. He was the fight promoter of Mike Tyson. If you remember him, it was really his hair was so it stood straight up. He was a promoter. How do we have a Don King view of God, right? Well, this is the way we think about God. We think that he exists to promote me. You exist for me. That's what Don King did. He made Mike Tyson wealthy. He promoted him. All of his fights and rang all the praises of who he was. That's part of the envy. Sometimes we think that God exists to promote me. That's the centrality of life. And then the other maybe is that he's a vending machine, right? I deposit something into you 
I read my Bible. I had a quiet time. I was kind. We read the Christmas devotional. We did all the, as if it's some thing I can deposit, and then therefore I get what I want. That's not a relationship to God based upon submission of who he is. That was not what Joseph is. That is you being God and him submitting to you. Now, let me just say one more beautiful thing. Some of the ways we have wrong views of God, too, and we don't submit, is we don't understand the depth of that second half there, his authority. Those first examples I gave you was authority, but the second one is just his love. Now, we did a great study in our church, men and women, around the book, Gentle and Lowly. And some profound, so there's one of the, one of the most con- broadly conversations I've heard in our church of people of what they've in depth are processing and learning about the God, that he is gentle and lowly towards us. I would rate that as one of the top three, four books I've ever read. And there's one of the truths, if those of you who are in it may remember this, is that we, um, we may not have a good view in submitting to the right kind of love of who God is. Now, right, some people think of God that he loves me based upon what I do. And therefore, when I obey, he loves me more. When I disobey, he loves me less. No. His love is not according to our deeds. Now, our experience of his love is different when we sin. But the position of our love towards us is not different. So when one of my children uh, misbehaves in our home, they're, they're, they, they have not moved out from under my love. I still love them. Nah, it's hard for me to in that moment because I'm a sinner. But I do. Their love, their status is love. But, what if, but in that moment, because of their sin, their experience of my love is different because there's sin between us. But the position of being an object of my love has not changed. But in Gentle and Lowly, it goes even deeper than that. This is one of the many deep points. Here's one of the things that Dane Ortland po- points out, is that you don't realize God loves you in your sin. And in the chapter that says, uh, what does our sin evoke in Jesus? He's referring to Hebrews 7, 25, that says Christ loves you to the uttermost. And uh, this, and when we, that's basically this. And this is a deep concept, one that I've been uncomfortable with for the last three years when I read this book, or two and a half years ago when it came out. And I'm still reading it. When we sin, the very heart of Christ is drawn to us. Let me say that. In your sin is when his heart is most drawn to you. That's what the passage is saying there, by the way, is that he came to save people from sin. That's when he's loving you the most. He loves to meet you there, and he loves you the most in that. And most of us think of him like we're some kind of slug, like a little kid which was in the book who reaches to touch a slug, and we're like, oh, the slug's dirty. That's not Jesus. He's gentle and lowly, and he pulls back, and he's drawn to us when we're at our lowest, lowest place, sin. Would you just close your eyes and let me read this one passage to you from the book and try to really listen to this? Take a moment and hear this. We all tend to have some small pocket of our life where we have difficulty believing the forgiveness of God reaches. We say we are totally forgiven, and we sincerely believe our sins are forgiven pretty much anyway, but there's that one deep, dark part of our lives, even our present lives, that seems so inattractable, so ugly, so beyond recovery. When God says to the uttermost in Hebrews 7.25, God means that his forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down to the darkest crevices of our souls, those places where we are most ashamed, most defeated, 
More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. His heart is willing to go there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost, and he saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to the uttermost. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care. That's profound, is it not? You can look back up at me. Thank you for following the rules there. God doesn't love you more because you did that. To encounter Christ is to submit to him, his authority, but also this kind of love. May I just finish with Christ? Does Christ submit? Yes, he does. Who did he submit to? The Father and the Holy Spirit. It's the beauty. We, we don't worship we worship a triune God who the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, they willfully and beautifully submit to one another out of their love for one another. So when Jesus is calling you to submit and to Joseph to submit, he's calling you to do something that he's gone before you in, who he is and what he does. He submits. Follow him in that. Next in the encountering the impact of encountering Jesus is the suffering side of it. There is to encounter Jesus at Christmas means to submit to him. It means submission. But it also means suffering. And we know that Philippians 3.10, right, the famous verse, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. So whether you know it or not, let me just remind you one more time, to become a Christian this side of heaven on this earth is not a pass on pain and suffering, which is somehow what we concoct in our head whether we believe it or not. We really think that somehow... Because I follow Christ in this vending machine idea that there I'm, I'm, I will not encounter difficulty. I, all of a sudden, I will have the path of least resistance in my life because I know Christ. We seem to think we'll sidestep that. But what was Joseph's encounter from the beginning? It was difficulty. It really was difficulty. And I, I'm not trying to counteract the joy of what it means. Actually, true Christian joy, means, the, the hope of Christianity is that we can have joy in our suffering. Why? Because of the person we know and the one who has loved us that we submitted to, okay? But the way in which that is experienced is oftentimes joining Christ who himself suffered and we follow him in that. And listen, so inside the church, you hear us say all the time, inside the church, there's cancer, just like there's, there's cancer outside the church. There's betrayal and hurt outside the church, and there's betrayal and church inside the church. There's death outside the church, and there's death inside the church. The only difference between us and the world is we have Christ. We have Emmanuel. Okay? So Joseph, in his beginning, he encountered Christ, and the suffering was right from the beginning. Right? I have often wondered, have you ever wondered what it was like to... Uh, to come have your conversation with your wife-to-be. And, and by the way, when it says there that they were betrothed to one another, it's important for you to understand that betrothal, the Jewish custom, there was an in-between. It's way more committed than a, 
than engagement like we do here in the West, but it wasn't quite fully marriage. And so you'll see the language there where it says that he was her husband, but he would divorce her, and yet they were betrothed. It was, um, it was like a, uh, there were witnesses there, and they said, we are going to be married, and Jewish custom was for a year that the man and the woman would go be with their families, and they'd take a year to, com- to prepare themselves for marriage and be committed to one another. It was greater than an engagement, but not quite a marriage. And so the language of divorce is actually used to describe it because it required uh, a, a ruling of a judge or someone in, in authority within the Jewish people to negate it. Okay? So he comes home and imagine that conversation, right? I mean, have you ever thought about that? He's, she's probably four months pregnant because we know she's been three months to visit Elizabeth, so she's showing. He says the passage tells us that he found, she was found pregnant. So she, some reason God chose for her not to tell him, he finds out. All right? And he finds out that she's, that she's pregnant. Imagine that conversation. So you're pregnant. Like this hasn't happened anywhere else in all of history. and hasn't happened since then. But you've got to have that conversation, and you're him, and you're like, well, you have a baby. You're, what have you done? I mean, who have you been with? Well, God put it here. No, yeah, I mean, I mean, can you imagine the awkwardness of that? It would have felt like betrayal. That's what it would have felt like, betrayal. You know, betrayal is, uh, there's a quote that says about betrayal, I don't know who said it, but the saddest thing about betrayal is that it never comes from your enemies. So he's feeling betrayed. He's not betrayed, but he feels it. And right now, my guess is every point, everyone in this room at some point has someone you've, you've so felt so betrayed by, you've yet to forgive them, or someone has betrayed you, or you know someone like that. Betrayal is a powerful thing. That's what he's experiencing. And that's what he feels. And then what is he facing? He's facing the shame of having to face the whole culture and everyone with his wife being pregnant, and they're only betrothed. They've not been intimate yet. So all the shame, right? Shame's not, not only have they broken the law, but shame is what, how you see me. How will they be seen? How will she be seen as that? How will we be viewed? The passage tells us that he was considering these things. It was a, it was a gut-wrenching decision. Everybody had hard decisions in your life to try to figure out what to do? What am I going to say, right? I mean, he's, he's trying to weigh the law and not put her to shame and think about all the people. What am I supposed to do? I'm going to divorce her quietly. That's what he's thinking about. He's thinking about life. That's a gut-wrenching, right-out-of-the-gate struggle to try to figure out how to relate to this guy. I'm just encountering Jesus here for the first time, and things are a little more difficult than I anticipated. And then, oh, yeah, I, I try to think about this, the weight of the story, which the nature of sin t- tells us this, is that I'm different, unique, and you don't know what it's like to be me. But I'm thinking, I mean, somebody can correct me. They probably are the one people that we don't know what it's like to be them. I'm the dad, I'm the, I'm, I'm the stepdad of, of the king and the creator of the world. What's that like? That's awkward. <coughs> That's really awkward. My kids are playing, and why is your kid so perfect all the time? And, oh, well, he's God. I mean, what do you say? Yeah, I'm sorry. Actually, he's God and he's nice, but you, matter of fact, you should probably bow down and worship him right now. I mean, can you? <laughs> and by the way, we, they know the story. They carry the weight of this story. We don't, it's not really proclaimed everywhere at this point. 
And they have to carry the weight of something knowing that. I mean, there is a pain and a, and a, and a suffering in this that is from the beginning. Most theologians, most historians believe Joseph dies before Jesus is born. But nevertheless, there's the shame of everything that's brought to him. And we would just go back and sit under the idea of that. But let me just remind you of one thing, the suffering here. I don't know if you thought about it this week when I was looking at it. Calvin said this about it. Think about this. God could have done it another way. He could have said, avoided him having to feel all that he felt. He could have avoided making him find out in a way and him having betrayal. He could have come before that. He could have, I mean, you see that this thing could have been orchestrated in a different way that wasn't quite as difficult for Joseph. And yet it wasn't. Why? I don't know. But what you ought to conclude is God didn't avoid the pain, the awkwardness, the weirdness. He invited him into it. And there's two names. There's two names that Jesus, I think, help us in our suffering just for today in, in our suffering. There's two names. You'll notice in the passage the name Jesus, right? Which, and, then, and then it quotes the Isaiah 9 passage. says his name will be Emmanuel. Jesus doesn't mean Emmanuel. So Emmanuel was God with us, which would have been the messianic name that they've been looking for. But Jesus was Savior or Jehovah, the one who saves. Those two names alone are the names we need in our suffering. In my pain, I don't understand what's going on. I don't know why he orchestrated and chose for me to feel betrayal and awkwardness and feel all these things. But he's the God who saved me. And so therefore, my eternity is secure. In the end, I will be okay. But that's not it. He's also the God, Emmanuel, who's with us. And I will be with you. You can know that I saved you, and I'm always with you. Even Matthew finishes with the Great Commission. Lo, I am with you always. Even to the ends of the earth. Those two names for Joseph he encountered, those were enough. And I would argue for us this morning and tell you that those are enough for you and me. Jesus knows what it's like to have shame and awkwardness. He went before him. Lastly, the other thing that, Jesus, that Joseph did is that he did suffer and he did submit and then he also served others. If you look at verse 24 and 25, when Joseph woke from his sleep, which he, God met him in a dream and spoke to him, the angel of the Lord spoke to him there. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. So then he, he took his wife but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So everything God told him to do, he did. So who did he begin to think about? Two people. It was like the summary of the law. He thought about God and who else? Others. That's what encountering Christmas does for people. <laughs> we encounter Christ, now all of a sudden we have a presupposition to think about, not what we did before, our own hearts apart from God make us think that the world revolves around us. But when we encounter Christ, now we think about loving God. We have the power to think about loving God and loving people. And he thought about his wife and everything he could do for her. And his kindness said, which by the way, he chose not to be intimate with her. So as even with his, his faithfulness was benefiting us so that the virgin birth would not be confused 2,000 years ago or 2,000 years later. That's what it does. Did Christ come to be served or to serve? 
the very son. He said that, that Joseph begins emulating his son before his son emulates it before him. Jesus Christ would say, I did not come to be served, but to serve man and be a ransom for many. So, the idea of encountering Christ is to is submission. When you encounter, if you encounter Him rightly in the Christmas way, if you will, we live in submission. We uh, in, we are able to endure suffering and join Him in His. And lastly, we turn to serve. That's the gospel. That's what it does when we encounter Christ. That's what it produces in people. And so, as you hear that this morning, you may think, I don't know if. That didn't motivate me enough. And where does the motivation come from? Well, one way I thought about, I thought was beautiful, is that um, our motivation really does come from who we are, not what we do, or how, how badly we want to do it. It comes from who we are. It comes from our identity. If you look in verse 20, how does, when the angel of the Lord speaks to him, what is the first words he says? Joseph, son of David. And from that point on, the commands in Joseph changes. Why? Because he declares to him, this is who you are. Now remember the context is this genealogy in the first 17 verses. And there is people, and he says, this is who you are. You're Joseph, I name you, I know who you are intimately, and you're the son of David. What does that mean? You're the son of my covenant of grace. I define you, and you are a son of the Most High. And because of who you are, therefore, you can submit to me and trust me. Therefore, you can, you can um, endure with suffering. Why? Because you are mine. That's your identity. And you can serve others. Why? Under the identity that, that I have given you. I don't go serve to earn my identity. My identity is true, and therefore God calls us to live and to serve. And that's how he faced him. I, our identity becomes very clear from the Christmas story. And God, you can substitute your name in that. And um, one of my favorite movies, um, I think my boy's old enough to handle it, but one of my favorite movies is the movie Gladiator. I don't know if you remember that movie. It was the Russell Crowe. It's about the Roman Empire, and he's a gladiator, and it's about the times when gladiators used to fight and, and um, in the arenas, right? The gladiator arenas in Rome for, for entertainment, and they would kill each other and fight each other right to the death for a show. And uh, Maximus is the gladiator, the center of the story, Russell Crowe, he's the main character, and what he has happened to him is um, he is a general of Marcus Aurelius, the current emperor, Roman emperor of Rome. And the king, Mar Marcus Aurelius, has affection for uh, Maximus, uh, his general, and wants him to be the heir to the throne. He doesn't look, trust his son. And in real history, Commodus, who's his son, is messed up. He's one of the worst leaders in all of history. All right? And <laughs> in a twist, the son, the bad son... Manipulates, kills his father, I believe it is, and he makes it to have Maximus murdered, but Maximus survives. And he lives and follows his life, and he finds himself back as a gladiator in front of the bad king. Well, now as a gladiator, he's a general of generals, right? And guess what? He's killing everybody. He becomes the most famous gladiator in the arena. And the new king, the son, Commodus, sees him, and he wants to come down. He comes down to the arena and says, take off your mask. Who is this guy that's killing everybody that all the people are yelling his name? Gladiator, gladiator, gladiator. Who is this man with such great, great power? And there's a moment where Maximus, 
He says, tell me who you are. And he says, I'm gladiator. And then he turns his back to the king, and the king says, don't turn your back to me. Turn around. And there's this great moment in the movie. This is the movie. This is the great line where he takes off his helmet, and he turns around and faces the king, and this is what he says. He says, my name is Maximus Decimus Meridius, commander of the armies of the north, general of the Felix legions, loyal servant of the true emperor Marcus Aurelius, father to a murdered son and husband to a murdered wife, and I will have my vengeance in this life and over the next. He turns and he states to the king, this is who I am. You want to know where my power comes from? Because I'm clear on my identity. And he stands before the evil king. That's what, that's what Joseph did. My name is Joseph, son of David, husband of Mary. I'm a carpenter of Judea, the stepfather of the Jesus of Nazareth. Yet he is my God and I worship him and I, may, I am made in his image and he is my brother and king by the grace of God alone. My father delights in me according to his mercy. I am a sinner paid and purchased with the blood of Jesus Christ whom I serve in this life and will dwell in him in the life to come. Do you see? That was the identity of Joseph. My son's not in here, but this is our identity. This is what I would want to say to my son. One of them. I got two of them, three of my kids. Hudson Terrell, you are the son of Shane and Brittany. And you are the brother of Madison, Macy Grace, Hadley, and Xander. And you come from generations of sinners of whom your family is the foremost. But God, being rich in mercy and in grace, has saved your father and your mother and made a covenant with him. And you are a child of that covenant, and therefore you are set apart. And we are the royal family of the Most High King who is our Father. And you are made in his image, son. And you are designed by him. And you are loved, not because of what you do, because of who you are, son, to him. Therefore, Hudson Terrell, grow in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men at Bate Middle School. That's what it's like to encounter Christmas. Let's pray. Father, would you change our hearts? And comfort us today. Would we, whatever areas of our life today that we don't want to willfully submit to, would you soften us and let us see your love for us? Whatever authority we avoid. And Father, any suffering, I pray that right now that people would believe, be mindful of their eternal security and that you're with them. And would you help us, even today, have the strength to look beyond our own hearts and minds and consider you and others? But would we be a church that would function from our identity, a people not good in and of themselves? but known and loved by the high king, the one who came and was born. Would we live in light of our identity and stop trying to create our own, but live in the beautiful submission of what it means to be identified as your people? Help us, God. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.